Thank you, Nisi. It was beautiful. Let your love take over. What an awesome desire of our hearts. As a matter of fact, that will that theme or that concept will play into the final point of our sermon this morning as we look at David in Psalm 141. And he's going to plead with God to govern his heart, to help him sort out his desires so that his heart loves God more than evil. Let your love take over. Well, we are in Psalm 141, and for Communion Sundays, I've been just camping out in the Psalms for several years now, and I can't get enough of the Psalms. I don't know about you, but the Psalms are incredibly refreshing, they're practical, and maybe one of the things that I like the most about them is that you can be anywhere in life for any time of the day and need to connect to God, and you can just open a Psalm. And you don't always have to look at the the the, um, the historical background and so forth to be able to understand what the psalmist is saying like we would in many historical books because many of the psalms are just expressions of the heart. Now, they're inspired by God, but they're just people learning how to do life. People rolling along with the same struggles that we have in our lives in what does it look like to live for God, to believe in God, to trust God, When oftentimes hard things come into our lives. So I um, don't think I will ever tire of the Psalms. I don't know what that means for you in Communion Sundays. Maybe the next 10 or 20 years. I don't know. But we shall see. We completed Psalm 100. I kind of use that as a foundation or a springboard to communicate the concept of the importance and the beauty of God's boundaries, the beauty of God's commandments and laws. And that is, he doesn't give us laws to to ruin our lives, to keep us from having fun. He gives us rules and laws to keep beautiful things beautiful. God is a good God. But we're going to change courses here a little bit. We have another Psalm of David. I'm not going to cover all of it. In uh, just this sermon, it's 10 verses. How do you expect somebody to cover a whole 10 verses in just, what, 30 some minutes? So we're going to look at this in two parts. Um, but I'm going to read it. It's only Because it's only 10 verses, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole psalm. Psalm of David. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. And let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I take refuge. Leave me not defenseless. 
Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. So a psalm of David. Uh, I can't necessarily confirm this, but this many scholars look at this as a an evening prayer. And where they get that is that he talks about his prayers being like the evening sacrifice, the incense of and the evening sacrifices. So many scholars think that this was sung or recited in the close of the day. And as you work through this in the next couple communion Sundays, I think you'll see a few things in here that are very similar to the Lord's Prayer. When I was reading this, and for instance, he addresses God uh, right out as Jesus tells us, our Father who art in heaven. But also it's a prayer, um, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And in the Old Testament, the saints had that same struggle and they struggled with their own hearts and 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 they wanted to experience the power of God to overcome sin. So there are some other things in here that will unfold as we jump into it. This is an extremely practical psalm. I'm very confident that as we work through it, even this morning and the next time, that God will have something in this for you. If you pay even just a little bit of attention, I'm very confident that God will use this word to encourage our hearts and make us steadfast this morning. So I pray the ministry of the Holy Spirit would take place here this morning. So my first point is in verses 1 and 2. And it's a prayer for by David for God uh, to close the gap. Lord, I call upon you. He says, hasten to me. Come to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So in these two verses, we see two things taking place. First of all, David's words, he wants to make sure that God is hearing what he has to say. Not that all prayers aren't important, but there are some prayers that we really want God to hear. We really want to know that we have connected. And then the second thing going on is not only does he want God to hear what he's saying, but it's a plea and a prayer for God to come to him. For God to draw close to him. So he wants to be heard by God and he wants God to come to him. When I first read this psalm, it was refreshing to me just for a man of God to acknowledge who God is. I like that David understands how life works in that he goes to the one and only true living God. That wasn't refreshing because we live in a culture now where people are constantly crying out for help from something because they frequently know they can't do life on their own. And yet they don't always know who to ascribe the power to or who to go to. But David's not an agnostic. He's clear on who he's asking or petitioning. He's not an atheist. And so he takes his his struggles and his communication, what's on his heart, straight to God. And he addresses him in this way. And he's simply asking God to listen Hear my prayer, God. Give ear to my voice. And a lot of times I think we take it for granted. We use God's name. We take it for granted because it can become a habit. But I think a good habit to get into 
is when we address God in prayer is to understand that we are addressing God in prayer. You know, to, to realize, okay, we, we have what happens in the world. We Maybe we've been communicating with our friends and our family and our spouses all day. But when you communicate or you talk to God, you're talking to God, the God. So I like the way how David kind of sequesters himself and, and even settles his mind in, in who he's approaching. Because who we're talking to should make a difference in what we say. And so he's approaching God in this way. It's not just something that we might want to check off our list. Okay, I I talked to God today. R.A. Torrey, I've quoted him many times. He was an influential Bible teacher uh, in earlier generations. And he used to say this. We should never utter one syllable of prayer, either in public or in private, Until we are definitely conscious that we have come into the presence of God and are actually praying to him, not just some higher power. And then he gives a little testimony about this. He says, I was brought up to pray. I was taught to pray so early in life that I'm not the slightest recollection of who taught me to pray. Nevertheless, Prayer was largely a matter of form. There was little real thought of God and no real approach to God. And even after I was converted, yes, even after I had entered the ministry, prayer was largely a matter of form. But the day came when I realized what real prayer meant. Realized that prayer was having an audience with God. Actually coming into the presence of God and asking and getting things from him. And the realization of that fact transformed my prayer life. Before that prayer had been a mere duty and sometimes a very irksome duty. But from that time on prayer has been not merely a duty but a privilege. One of the most highly esteemed privileges of life. Before that the thought I had was how much time must I spend in prayer? The thought that now passes me or possesses me is how much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties of life. So I like that because it it communicates not just the need that we have for prayer, but the privilege that we have in prayer. And so that's what I mean by closing the gap. David In this prayer, he's saying, God, come to me. And I found this intriguing because if you if you know scripture, you will know that God reveals himself as spirit. That means he's he is immaterial. He is not bound by space. He's not bound by time. And there's a fancy one fancy word to uh, describe an attribute of God is that he is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere present. He's always and everywhere present because he permeates everything that he's created. There's not a molecule. There's no rogue molecules, I think, as R.C. Sproul would say. He's just everywhere and he's everywhere all the time. Nobody else can be that or do that but God. And so we hear that and we understand God's revelation. We understand him to be present all the time. And that's just a fact. It's just a truth. And we don't always have to feel that. We don't always have to feel that that's true. And it's okay just to know that that's true. 
And it's great to actually operate our lives on a daily basis, knowing that God is present with us, no matter what's going on in our lives. So we can know that even now. We can know whether where, wherever we are in life, maybe some of our minds are somewhere else. We have too many things going on in our lives right now. It's hard to pay attention. Uh, maybe we're thinking about what happened this morning, what's, what the rest of our day is going to look like. But regardless, God is present. God is present with us here because he inhabits the presence, the, the praises of his people. And he said in the Great Commission, lo, I am always with you. You're going in my name. You're making disciples. You just cannot escape the presence of God, period. So he's omnipresent. But what David is talking... So David knows this, and yet he says, God, come to me. Now, why? Why would he say that? If he already knows God is there, you can't even escape him. In another, in another psalm, he says, where can I go to escape the presence of God? I can't go... There's, I can't go low enough. I can't go high enough. I can't go in any direction. I can't be in any state of mind and escape the presence of God. But he says in this psalm, come to me, God. So you have the omnipresence of God, but then you also have what the Puritans called the manifest presence of God. The manifest. And that's where it's not just knowing, but there are times when God makes his presence known very clearly in your mind or with what the eye sees, circumstantially, experientially. So you have the broad knowledge out there, but this is more of the personal knowledge where he just, it's true, but now he makes that truth and that fact very clear to you. So it's, it's a unique time, clear to the eye, clear to the mind, they say. So there's a sense in which, even though God is omnipresent, David is asking him, for whatever reason, God's not close enough. There's a distance. And he's asking God to close the gap during this prayer. With the things that are going on in his life, his struggle. God, will you close the gap? Maybe he's feeling distance of sorts. But whatever it is, he wants the manifest presence of God, not just the omnipresence of God. He wants to know that his words have been heard and he wants to experience God. And this is profound, I think, because um, we, we could we could say, well, that's a evidence of a weakness of faith. Well, why can't you just know that God's always there? Why do you have to ask him? Well, we're human. And we're, we do have times of fallenness or weakness. We can't keep every truth in our head all the time to make it real to us. God just knows this about us. And you know what? No matter how strong we are in Christ, there are going to be times where we feel like we don't even know where he is. Where we wonder if he even exists. And in our weakness or whatever you want to call it, our flaws, in our inability to, to keep things straight and present, God is willing to come to us. And make things clear here or make his presence clear here or make his presence more noticeable, manifested in a more powerful way. He's just good like that. We're human. And he knows that. So you have passages like in Hebrews where he makes it clear we we live by faith, not by sight. And yet what does God do? 
He does things in our lives that we can plainly see. So it's not just a head game. It's not just a spiritual experience. It's a real thing where we use our hearts, our minds, our wills, our our emotion to understand and grasp the presence of God. He's so good. I thought about him just the very first book of the Bible when God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, a manifest presence. And throughout Scripture, you think about uh, his presence with Abraham as he made a covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament and split the animals in two. And God walked through them in the presence of a flaming fire. And speaking of flaming fire, then when Moses met with God, I am the I am the burning bush. These are manifestations a splitting of the sea, things that you can see. That's God, the pillar by day, the fire by night. That's God. It's manifestations. It's clear all the way up to Pentecost when they're in the upper room praying and tongues of fire are, are flying around and the, the sounds of like a locomotive. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. It was manifested by God. And so, yes, we live by faith, not by sight, but God does come to us. In these special ways. It's okay to ask for these. We don't, God determines when and where and how we receive them. Because he knows what we need to be built up in faith. And there are times when God will call us just to know. And there are times when he will, yes, come to us. And it might just be the, the, a small nudge. A small voice where God says, I'm here. That's happened to me numerous times where I'd be crying out to God and I want something big, but I get something small. But it's it's connecting there. That's this little, okay. The nudge. Might be through some kind of influence, might be a letter, or a phone call, but he comes. He comes in health, help. He comes in, in strength. He comes in mercy. He's ready to fellowship with us. He comes in truth. He he comes in a way to make it clear for us at that time in our walk. So God closes the gap. That's the prayer here. Just a few more things to notice. David says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. So When you think about, so he sees himself and he's thinking about temple or tabernacle worship. I don't think the temple was built yet. Solomon did that. But tabernacle worship. And he wants, what happens in the tabernacle is the whole purpose of the perpetual incense that burned in the Holy of Holies is that it's a sweet, perpetual aroma to God. And it's something that they did that's pleasing to God. And so David said, I want my prayers to be like that. When they rise up to your ears, I want my words not to just be any words, but to be words specifically aimed at pleasing you, bringing pleasure to you. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor here that's very, very powerful. I think that's a good habit to get in when we think about our prayers is to not only realize that we are in this having this unique conversation with a very unique God, but also we want our our prayers, our words to to find their mark in pleasing him. 
In Revelation 5, 7 through 8, it talks about the prayers of the saints. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So when we pray to God, it is pleasing to him. It's like that aroma. As a matter of fact, uh, I was raised Catholic and there's a lot of symbolism in Catholicism. And one of the things they would do to symbolize this, and, and the church was had really high ceilings, so it was neat. But the priest would take the incense and he would, he would move it around and you could see the smoke just ascend very slowly up and up and up into the ceiling. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. May our prayers please the Lord. So David's praying. He sees himself now in the tabernacle and now his hands are to be lifted up as the evening sacrifice. So you get this this idea that he's praying for God to come close to hear him and he's there now. He's like he, he sees himself in the presence of God, worshiping God. His prayers are like incense and he's lifting his hands like the evening Sacrifice Again, these are things to that represent God's pleasure. This was the tabernacle was kind of God's turf, if you will. I mean, the whole world is. But this is this is a concentrated form where everything is to take place uh, as perfect as humanly possible, because this is the utmost way to please God. And he's lifting his hands as he prays, as he worships in the presence of God. So for David, his body's involved in prayer. Have you ever gotten your body involved in prayer? Sure you have, I'm sure. You know, body our, our body movements is another way to communicate. You, today, one of the crazes is uh, body language. I mean, we have learned, we have studied humanity so uh, intensively that we have learned how powerful body language can be. Uh, law enforcement uses it. To the extent where sometimes they say, I can tell if you're lying or telling the truth. The body language says something. And so David, is he's getting not just his mind and his heart, but his body is into this, this prayer. And he wants to communicate by lifting his hands the sincerity of his prayers. And there is something powerful with getting our bodies behind what we're trying to communicate. Perhaps sometimes you've decided you're praying to God and... And it just felt like, you know what? This prayer needs to be a kneeling prayer. There's been times when I've been praying to God and I just slipped out of my chair and kneel before him because that's a posture. Or maybe some of you have been flat on your face before God. It's a posture of sincerity behind your words. And I mean what I say. My whole heart and soul is in this for you, God. So he's longing to meet with God and he he shows this through his words in his prayer. Talking about body language, not to put anybody on the spot, but I was told that when um, David and Lisa were growing up, that their mama would pray for them, would pray for their spiritual well-being. And uh, sometimes that would mean in the hallway outside of their bedrooms, face down on the floor. Is that right? That's right. It's a posture that's, that's putting the body behind what the heart wants and is petitioning God for. 
So close the gap. And then secondly, it's a prayer for God to govern. Verses 3 through 4. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. I said this was a practical psalm, didn't I? Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. So in essence, this is a prayer for purity too. I want to connect with God. I want him to hear me. And one of the things I really need uh, not just help with, but God, I need you to govern Almost take over because I can't do it. And that is purity. I don't want my my mouth to slip. I don't want my heart to slip. That's the last thing that he wants. He's trying to please God. And David knows that, you know, even in our prayers, we have to watch what we say. Now, you think about the content of his prayer. One thing is that he is against the wicked and the evil. But he wants to make sure that he's not too harsh in his words against the evil. So that he uh, evil and wicked people. So that he displeases God. And he wants to be pure. And he's praying a prayer of purity. But he doesn't want to pray it in such a way that would come across arrogant. So he's kind of navigating these waters. And he's asking God really uh, to purify his prayers. To purify his word. To purify his life. He knows he's a sinner. He knows that sin angers God. We have to be careful. A lot of times we know that sin angers God and and oftentimes we just think that the wicked people are sinners and we forget that we sin as well. That our sin can anger God save the death of Christ. So David was a man of God's own heart. He was an impeccable, impeccable ruler, a king at times. He was a great warrior at times, a great leader at times. But he also had many, many flaws. And he sinned in grievous, grievous ways. He failed God. And he's taken his weakness to God. And in essence, he's asking God to pull rank. Here's the king. A king asking God to pull rank when it comes to governing his own heart. He governs a nation of people. But God, I need you. That's how dangerous my heart can be. To keep me pure, Lord. And first he addresses his tongue. Lord, help me to keep my mouth shut when it needs to be shut. But help me to open it when it needs to be opened. There are times when there are things we shouldn't say. And then there's things that we should say. We can fail God by not saying good things. Complimentary things. Encouraging things. Pointing things out that will build up the body of Christ. And will exalt the Lord. And of course we want to keep. He's asking God to to basically be the sentry, be the guard of my mouth because uh, I I just need somebody there all the time to watch what I say because I want it to be pure and sincere. There was a um, uh, Greek philosopher back in 339 um, B.C., Xenocrates. He was uh, head of an Athenian academy and he said this, I have often repented of having spoken, but never of having been silent. There's some truth to that. So words can do great harm, can they not? So right now, I am the only one talking as far as I can see here. I have to be careful with what I say. I have to be careful with what comes out of my mouth. When I'm finished, 
it will be your turn when you when we have a fellowship meal or perhaps when it's time for you to depart and go home. Maybe you had a conversation on the way to church and it's not finished and it got heated. And see, we have an opportunity now. Maybe there's think conversations we know we have to have this week. Maybe there's words we know we we need to say to people. We have this opportunity to to ask God to purify our tongues, to stand guard, to help us to be mindful of what we say. Because we don't want our words to be, to be displeasing to him. Sure, they hurt people's feelings, and that's bad in and of itself. But sinful words displease the God that we say that we love. So we, what will we do with this? Do we understand our own mouths and the importance of our words? So David really wants to be pure. This is a, it's an all-out effort. But then he realizes it's not just his tongue or his mouth that needs to be addressed. Because where do the words come from? But our hearts. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. Same thing that Jesus teaches us when he says, For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So if we're going to get really serious about being pure and pleasing to God, we cannot avoid examining our own hearts. We can't avoid examining what's in there. We can't afford to live in any kind of denial because David realizes its heart is what drives his tongue. And I think it's very telling to to see how David's thinking here. Because he's, he wants to be protected. There's two things going on. First of all, he recognizes that there are wicked people out there. They're doing evil things. But he sees them as enticing. They're delicacies of the world. So they are uh, alluring. Sin can be, wickedness can be very enticing and very alluring. And, it's, and that's what happens when we join the ranks of the wicked. We can be a source of temptation. But he doesn't just land there, get those evil, wicked sinners, God. He wants to guard his own heart because he knows that the only reason it's enticing to him is because he likes it. There's a part of his heart that wants it. Otherwise, if, if he just saw evildoers, there wouldn't be any temptation involved. Oh, I hate that. It's darkness. And there's no darkness in me. But he realizes his own heart has darkness. So he's not only saying, yes, a wicked group of people, you know, bad company corrupts good morals thing. That's true. But he also realizes his own heart is dangerous. So I need to get away, not because they're wicked. I need to get away to stay pure, to keep myself being wicked. And I think this is important because a lot of times we become Christians and we see ourselves as more righteous as the non-Christians. Now, in Christ, we are. But then all of a sudden, we start looking at evil as something we catch. Like, I can't, I don't want to hang out with you. I might catch your wickedness. Evil's not something we catch. Evil's something we were born with. Evil's something we all possess. Evil is what God is crushing right now as he crushes the curse. And he is renewing the kingdom and renewing his people. But evil lives in us. So we we don't want to be naive, especially in our culture, where we look out there and say, boy, we need to stay away from all those wicked, evil people. We need to say that because of the tendency of our own heart. 
And I've, I've seen this in parenting where parents will, will blame some other kid for something that their kid did. Like, like my kid caught the evil of your kid by hanging around with you. What are you going to do about that? Well, I know that there can be evil effects and we can be victims of things where we didn't want to participate. But if, if I am getting close enough allowing myself to be a part of these things because my heart likes it or wants it and I'm willing to take the risk, that's on me. And that's what David is saying. James Montgomery Boyce says, David's not too good for evil people. He's too much like them and therefore likely to be swept away by their wickedness if in their company. So David's saying, God, govern my heart. I I need you just take the reins. I'm going to put all of my effort into it, but even my effort's not enough. Proverbs 21, 1 says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. And, and that's David's plea. God, turn my heart to righteousness and purity. I can't be trusted as much as I will would like to. So we see it's a prayer to close the gap. And we see it's a prayer for purity. We have a lot to think about as we sing our praises this morning. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We want to think about... The presence of God. We want to think about our words. Uh, We want to think about guarding our mouths. We want to think about the desires of our heart. How will we overcome the delicacies of the world? Desiring them. The way we overcome desiring wickedness is by desiring good. That our heart would desire and love God more than anything else. That's where the victory is. Is one. May God govern our hearts this morning as He turns them into hearts of love and worship towards Him alone. May God bless the preaching of His Word, and we're going to have a time of praise and then the Lord's Supper.